Our third panel is about music, visual arts and film. The first paper is by Claire Knight of the University of Cambridge. The paper is entitled Silence in the Archives. Um, basically, I'm just going to go through um, three aspects of my project, three sort of morals that I learnt in the archives relating to those aspects, and then three sort of general tips for you. Um, so to begin, uh, my project is on post-war Soviet cinema, uh, 1945 to 53. This is the period known as um, the years of few films. Um, it, it, it actually went down to just nine films being released in 1951. And this is greatly because censorship was extremely strict during this period and, and became quite intensive uh, until near the end of uh, Stalin's life when things sort of started to loosen up a little bit. Um, about half of my project is just a history of the industry, uh, and then the other half is analyzing the blockbusters of, of the period. Um, I use the term quite loosely. All of the films were blockbusters because there were so few and everyone <laughs> wanted to go and see a film. Um, and, uh, and, I kind of, and I pick out certain key themes. Silence is one of those themes, but I'm also dealing with different forms of silence throughout the entire project. So, um, so this summer I went to the archives to try to find silence in the archives. Now, um, I had planned my trip to be for a couple of months, uh, but it ended up being five and a half weeks. Uh, basically, the heat wave and the forest fires hit, and I decided to leave while the going was good. Um, so this kind of takes me to my first archive trip moral, really. And that is, prepare, 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 but always be willing to change your plans. And this applies not only to sort of your technical plans, your plans of maybe, you know, um, going to certain archives more than what you had anticipated, that kind of thing, but also just your dissertation itself. My whole dissertation changed quite a bit um, as a result of the archive trip in terms of uh, the weighting of how much time I'm going to spend on certain topics and also uh, in terms of my methodology, which, thank goodness, was actually simplified by going to the archives. So there are good things that happen in archives too. Anyhow, so I was off to uh, three archives, Rugaspi, Regali, and Gosfilmofond, the state film archive. Um, and I was heading off to look at party and state material on the production of the films themselves from the perspective of the state at the socio-political archive, screenplays at the literature and art archive, and also the unpredictable treasure trove of the Bumajni Diela at the uh, state film archive. And I went with two goals in mind. One broad goal, just to see what I could find about the production process and read everything that I could po possibly manage to, to read. But then also a specific goal, so that you know, if I didn't end up getting to, uh, being able to get through all of the material, at least I could feel like I accomplished something specific. And that was to look um, for material about sound and silence in two specific films. So um, preparing for the trip, we've heard um, a lot of really good advice so far. So I'll just highlight um, my, my sort of the most important bit of advice I think I can give, which is don't reinvent the wheel. Basically, uh, do as much sort of uh, research as you can beforehand, checking out archival references in the works uh, that you're using yourself. This gives you a starting point. Um, the archive websites, like Sam mentioned yesterday, some of them actually have their catalogs online. It's fantastic. Um, and then websites like Archaeobibliobase. Um, published catalogs, all of the, those books up there. 
um, and most importantly, the Russian internet, because there is um, a sort of a very fierce disdain for copyright legislation in Russia. Uh, and I found some material that I actually wasn't able to have access to um, in the archives while I was there. I found it completely transcribed and uploaded on the internet, along with a collection of documents that I had been able to see, so I could see that it was actually very accurate. So some some very sort of obsessive Russian who was uh, you know very focused on a particular film had already done the research for me, basically. Uh, and finally, email uh, the archives in advance. A lot of them will respond to you. Email the head of the archives and email the head of the reading room. Um, and some of them are a lot friendlier by email than they are in person, um, especially Dima, at, if you're going to the literature and art archive. Uh, and it's also worth using your supervisor's connections. If your supervisor's worked in a particular archive and has a good relationship with someone, uh, really kind of you know, exploit that as much as possible. Now, uh, on to my actual project. So, silence in the archives. The first obvious silence for my period is the silence of omission. Um, so, this, these are just sort of historical silences, topical silences, that kind of thing. So, just a, a very brief um, and basic uh, social history of my period. Basically, the post-war years were racked with poverty, with, um, with famine, with uh, crime, or at least the perception of crime, um, with intergenerational strife, with apathy towards constructing the socialist system. So we see um, a lot of young people um, not, not joining the collective when they come of age, a lot of cynicism about party membership as well when young people are coming of age, um, and also questions of nationality are on the rise with the newly expanded Soviet bloc. Of course, what we see on film is something quite different. We just see basically a, a, a never-ending slideshow of abundance, of culturedness, of uh, rich diversity of cultural pursuits, intergenerational harmony, respect for the Kalhoz leader, the member of government, or any sort of authority figure, um, and a multinational, multicultural atmosphere that is marked with camaraderie rather than tension. All of the enemies uh, in these films are external, or else they're cosmopolitans, which basically means that they're stuck inside, but they wish they were outside. Now, of course, I didn't expect to find anything on these historical or, or topical silences. You know, I, I never even thought about it going to the archives. It seemed a sort of an obvious line of inquiry, and I didn't really want to go down that road of saying, oh my goodness, what a travesty. They're not showing reality in these films. Well, of course they're not. They're films. Um, but when I got to the archives, I found that these serious issues actually were discussed, um, but not part of a dialogue. They were only and only ever in the form of an answer. So what I found were pages and pages and pages of instructions. Show this, this, and this. We need a film that, um, that shows us this, this, and this other thing. With all the thises, of course, being a response to the serious issues that were going on at the time. Now, so we end up with, with films about teamwork, intergenerational reconciliation, uh, young people overproducing for the kalhoz, all of those kinds of things. So it wasn't a silence that I found about these issues, um, but rather a one-sided conversation. Now, what surprised me, this is actually quite obvious, really, and it's something that I should have picked up on uh, in, from home, in front of my own computer screen. But it took the archives to, uh, to really make me realize this, to see that they were being very deliberate about how to respond to these serious issues that were racking Soviet society after the war with reconstruction and this sort of thing. Um, and I found that socialist realism is, is not simply the portrayal of a sort of one-size-fits-all socialist utopia, but it's developing in response to um, lived reality. 
so the specific sort of sounds and songs and heroes and plot lines and triumphs um, that we see in these films are very much in response to things that are happening at that moment. Um, it was basically these films are shaped by rather than being completely divorced from historicity. So that takes me to my second archive trip moral, which is um, that the act of being physically in the presence of the material you are studying um, will, I can guarantee you, uh, give you valuable insights into your subject. So if you're at all hesitant about, you know, should I bother to go to the archives? Maybe, you know, maybe you're doing a topic that you can very do quite well from here. Um, I'd say just go because um, it, it does it does sort of give you a new perspective on things and it makes things that should have been obvious to you at home makes them more clear uh, when you're when you're in the archives. Now, the second type of silence that I deal with in my project is of course censorship. So the process of silencing. Um, most of my time is actually spent on this, getting to know sort of the characters and the plot line of, of censorship in this period. Uh, and, I've, and I learned sort of two major things. Well, actually, one thing was, was basically confirmed for me, and that is that the bulk of censorship was actually self-censorship. Um, that's what I expected to find, so it was good to see that that expectation was actually confirmed um, by the archival material. Now, the second thing I learned is that, at least in my experience, uh, the material preserved in the archives is thoroughly inconsistent. It's completely, completely, completely hit and miss as to what you're gonna find. You might find the exact kind of report that you need or the exact kind of document or correspondence, but it's likely to be a one-off or to be about the wrong film, basically, if you're doing films. Um, there are some advantages to this. It encourages lateral thinking or possibly rethinking of your topic. Um, but the best way that I can describe it is, is kind of like um, that, that old Indian proverb about the six blind men who are uh, given the task of, of explaining what an elephant is. And they're sort of, they're feeling this elephant and they all come up with different definitions of what an elephant is based on, on their own personal experience of it. And this is very much like what you're doing in the archives. You're kind of feeling around all these different kinds of sources. Um, you're the blind man, basically. But the problem is that it's not just something tangible like an elephant that you're trying to define. It's actually this concept of zoo. So basically, good luck. <laughs> now, um, for my part, I found very few examples of the kinds of sources that I was hoping for, which are the Artistic Council recommendations and um, Central Committee directions about how to censor specific films. Um, at least I didn't find them where I expected to find them, and so I assumed they weren't there. Uh, but then on my last day, I went to a different archive, and there they were. I had been there before and had looked at the types of files that they had and hadn't seen this kind of material in it and so assumed it didn't exist. Um, and so it was you know, fantastic to find that they're actually there and also very frustrating because that was my last day. So I have to go back. Um, so that leads me to my second tip, which is don't miss the boat. Um, if at all possible, go to all of the archives and libraries that you're planning to go to early on so that you can see the types of material that are in different places because sometimes things are not going to be where you expect to find them. Then you'll get a better idea of how they're going to complement one another and how you should divide up your time. Because in retrospect, I should have been going to, uh, on the days that the political archive was closed, I should have been going to the film archive. Um, and then I wouldn't have to be going back again, though I don't mind going back again. It is, it is, it is wonderful to, to to go to Russia. 
Um, so the third type of silence that I deal with in my project is, well, of course, silence itself. So the presence of silence or um, the act actual silence in films. And now, of course, I must admit that when you think of post-war um, Soviet film, you don't necessarily think of it abounding in sort of this deep reflective space of silence, much you know, unlike the Thaw films, where they seem to you know, practically revel in silence. Instead, in these films, they're dominated by song and dialogue um, and, and especially politi political speechifying. But um, in the first year of my studies, uh, I stumbled across a, a discovery that instances of silence in the films in the film of um, Padenia Berlina, The Fall of Berlin, uh, appeared to be crucial in the process of meaning making uh, for both contemporary Soviet viewers and for Western scholars. Now, Katerina Clark has discussed um, silence as being a sort of a space that provides a temporary respite from the hegemony of, of the directive word in film. Um, so kind of a space where the viewer can interpret for themselves the images. What I found with the silences in the fall of Berlin, though, uh, was that people weren't just sort of free to interpret whatever they wanted, but they um, were sort of prompted by the film itself, obviously, to interpret cer certain things. Now, Western scholars um, tend to uh, interpret this film as being about the deification of Stalin, whereas contemporary Soviet uh, uh, reviewers see it as being a film about the Soviet people and about uh, Stalin's reliance upon the Soviet people. This is again a kind of an obvious thing. It's something that you would expect to see. But when I looked at the actual scenes where there are silence or there's no dialogue and we're just kind of with Stalin alone as it were, um, then I, I started to notice something familiar. So the first things are the shots uh, from the silent scenes. And then the second are uh, very popular um, propaganda posters or political posters from the period. So we can see that the, um, the scenes are actually recreating certain, certain familiar poses, as it were. There's his godlike stance. And the interesting thing is that all of these posters, all of the slogans, all of the, the, the writing, um, the, the captions for these posters have to do with Stalin's love for the people, um, his respect for the people, and his care for the people. So the focus in the, uh, in the words is on the people, whereas the image is, of course, dominated by Stalin. So that's that, that idea of um, Stalin as a sort of a cipher for uh, the people and as a, you know, a sort of a figure that means uh, the people are respected, the people are cared for, the people are appreciated, uh, was slipping into the film, even though the film itself is very old-fashioned, more of a 1930s Stalin as the leader, as the teacher, this kind of thing, not so much as the caring um, uh, sort of people lover. Um, but this idea slips into the film in the silences. So I wanted to see if this happened again, um, because I obviously couldn't base an entire chapter just on a couple of images like that, because I can't submit a PowerPoint, so, you know. Um, so I didn't expect to find anything. I expected to have to carry out some kind of really complex analysis of, you know, very intensive um, uh, analysis of, of film reviews and having to kind of do these methodological acrobatics in order to flesh out my chapter on silence. And at best, it would only ever be kind of speculative, which is why I would put it at the end, you know, and hope that people wouldn't really notice how kind of um, ephemeral it was. Um, but on my last day, at uh, the last archive I visited, the State Film Archive, I was proven wrong, thankfully. Um, great, thanks. 
I found the minutes of the Artistic Council where they actually discussed the weakness of the musical score in the opening sequence of a particular film, Povesto Nastayashem Cielevyaka, which opens with about 17 minutes of pretty much silence. There is a musical score that kind of pops up at different points, but it's mostly just kind of this empty silence. Um, so when they're speaking about the weakness of the musical score, they're actually talking about the presence of silence. So I had actually found them discussing uh, this thing that I never expected to find them discussing. Now, what I found is that uh, they were uncomfortable with the silence, not because they feared that viewers would develop their own interpretations of the images, but because they were afraid that viewers wouldn't interpret anything, that they would just kind of sit there and they wouldn't get the point of the images if they didn't have some music um, to sort of uh, concentrate the emotional impact of the moment of the image. Um, the second thing I found was that it wasn't the absence of dialogue that sort of concerned them, but it was the absence of music. So in this instance, they felt that music was the most, uh, the, the clearest, the simplest, the most effective way to direct how people were going to be interpreting the image. Um, both of these points were things that I never dreamed uh, I would find. Um, you know, I'm sort of, uh, had been reading so much about the logocentricity of socialist realism and all this kind of thing that I was expecting there to be sort of anxiety about the lack of dialogue, about the lack of, of words. Um, but it was actually music and, uh, and it was actually this fear that note that they wouldn't interpret um, that was driving their concern about the silence. But in the end, they ended up actually extending the period of silence, uh, which blew my mind as well. Um, and so it, it basically, as a result of that, it's, it's just had a huge impact on, on my argumentation, obviously, but also on my methodology now. I know that there is a simpler way. I don't need to be going out there and sort of reading between the lines and using such a problematic source as the official Soviet reviews. I can actually go and use these artistic council uh, discussions instead to see the kinds of things that were concerning them. Um, so that leads me to my third and final moral. Oh yeah, there's uh, the Povesto Nastayashem Chelyveka, which is be prepared to be humbled uh, when you sit down at that East German microfilm reader <laughs> for two reasons. First of all, um, you probably won't get it to work on your first try, so you'll need to get some help. Um, and secondly, you just might be surprised um, by your own material, by the people, by their insightfulness and their intelligence, and by the fact that they are seeing things um, that you think were only possible to see with hindsight or with theory or with a Western education. They are seeing these things too. It's just that their ideals are very different. Their goals are quite different from our own. But don't underestimate uh, the people that you're researching. Don't underestimate the, uh, the material either. So my final tip then, when you're feeling around in the dark, when you're that blind man at the zoo trying to figure out what is going on, sometimes you'll find that there's a braille sign. If you do, just read it. For me, the braille sign was those artistic council minutes. And that is it. Thank you very much. <laughs>